Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. We are going to finish off our Book of Acts series. This is part 12. If you're following along, we're jumping right in. We are using the New King James Version. So if you say, Isaiah, why is your thing not matching my thing? We're using the New King James Version. And also, I'll go over it later, but we're going to be overviewing a few of these chapters because it's going to be Paul's trial. So three to four of these chapters are Paul's trial, and we're not going to go through and read through Paul's entire trial because it's descriptive, and there's not much for me to say about it. So we will be overviewing it for the sake of time. But tonight, we are starting in chapter 20, verses 9 through 12. We do have a lot to cover. Let's get into this. So if you're following Acts chapter 20 verses 9 through 12, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down the third story and was taken up dead. Okay. So the boy's dead now, but Paul went down, laid over him or fell on him and embracing him said, do not trouble yourselves for his life is in him. Now, when he had come up, he had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed and they brought the young man alive and they were not a little comforted. So Paul is preaching. We talked about this in the last week's teaching on this. Paul is preaching and Paul is preaching. And it's midnight now. And this young man that's in Paul's gathering is falling asleep. Remember, Paul did not have a clock while he was preaching in this gathering. Paul knew this would be the last time that he addressed this crowd. And Paul was long-winded in his preaching. Hello, somebody. Okay. Can anybody else relate to this? And as Paul's preaching, there's a young man that's in the room. The lights are on. The candles are lit. The Bible says, and the boy falls asleep in the light. And some of you might say, how could you possibly fall asleep while the apostle Paul is preaching? Yet many of us spiritually are sleeping in the light. We go to church every Sunday. We listen to great preaching every single week and we're in the move of God. We're in the revival. Our pastor's giving us the word. Yet in a spiritual sense, we're sound asleep. There's no excitement. There's no urgency. There's no passion. There's no zeal for God. And like this young boy, maybe you could relate sleeping in the light. Friend, it is time that the body of Christ is wide awake in these last days. We need to be sober, the Bible says. The Bible says now is the high time to wake up out of our slumber, that the day is far spent, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, and that we're living in these final moments of history. This is not the hour to sleep in the light. Come on, chat. This is not the time to play church, to go through the motions, to live a lazy Christian life, arguing with everybody about what we should be doing for God. Now's the time to say, Lord, I am not going to be found sleeping in the light. I'm not going to be that foolish virgin that when the Lord returns, there's no oil in my lamp, but I want the fire of God burning in my life. I want the passion of God burning in my life. I want the presence of God burning in my life. I refuse to fall asleep in the light. I refuse to be in a place where God is moving and I'm just sitting in the window, halfway in, halfway out, fall right out of the window. You know, so many people fall out of the move of God. So many people fall out of revival. So many people fall out of good messages and good churches. And one day they're on fire. The next day, where did that person go? There's a lot of people that fall out of our streams. And you know, I don't have everybody's contact, but I, it breaks my heart when people come and say, oh, I backslid for nine months or a year. I'm glad to be back. But yeah, I spent a year out in the world. Don't fall out of the window. Don't fall out of the move of God. Don't fall asleep in the light. This is the hour to be awake. Now, Paul, the Bible says, 
raised him from the dead. The Bible says Paul stretched out over the boy like Elijah did in the Old Testament. It's the same thing Elijah did with the boy. And Paul raised him from the dead. This idea that as disciples, we don't have the power to raise the dead is not biblical. Just as Paul had the power to raise the dead, we have the same spirit that raised Christ living on the inside of us. So yes, we have resurrection power living on the inside of us. Some people say, well, no disciples ever raised the dead. Well, Paul's right here in the book of Acts and Paul, the Bible says, raised this boy from the dead. And then not only does he raise the boy, they bring him back inside because he fell out of the window and Paul preaches until the sun came out. And I want to note something, the boy didn't go back to bed. So when God wakes you up, come on chat, when God wakes you up, don't go back to sleep. When God saves you, God changes you, God delivers you, God heals you, God restores you, God gives you a mind with peace and joy and hope and you go from being broken and hurting and God wakes you up and you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying in that moment that God woke you up and then all of a sudden, it's like, men, we go right back to bed. We go right back to sleep after all that God has done. Like, how could I go back to the life I lived as an atheist? What? What would I go back to? As Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. Where would we go, Jesus of Nazareth? There's too many of us in the church that God wakes up and then we just lull ourselves back to sleep. The boy didn't just wake up. He wasn't just raised from the dead. Come on, I'm, I'm a testimony. God woke me up, raised me from the dead. Come on now. But now I'm staying awake. I've been awake for 11 years. I have zero plans to go back to bed. I'm not like, well, in five years, 10 years, let's see how this whole revival thing works out and see how this whole live streaming YouTube and preaching and traveling all over to preach the gospel, this whole church thing. Let's just see how it goes. No. I have died to my old self. I've been awakened by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've been made alive in Christ. For me to live as Christ and die is gain. Like I'm living for eternity until my very last breath. So I'm not going back to bed. I just wanted to note that the boy didn't go back to bed. Paul preached until the morning came. So recapping from the last session we did just to catch you up. These believers met on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. They ate together. They met at night. They met in a home and the length of the service was not regulated by a clock. This is a far cry from the church we see today where we have, you know, 45 minutes of worship before and we got to hurry up and give a 25 minute message to get to the next service in and we don't eat together. We don't meet together. We don't have prayer together. That is not the church we see in the book of Acts chapter 20. Okay. Acts 20, 13 through 17 is just going to basically describe, and I'm going to summarize some of these verses because they're long winded and they just give places that I can't pronounce most of them. So they'll just give a place and then Paul went here and Paul went here and Paul went here. So I'm going to overview Acts 20, 13 through 17. It's going to describe Paul's traveling journey, which is going to lead him to the leaders of Ephesus where he's going to be talking to them. And Paul's goal, if you look at Acts 20, 13 through 17, basically Paul's goal in all of his journey is to hurry to Jerusalem so that he can be in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, if possible, the Bible says. Okay, so let's pick up in Acts 20 verses 18. So that's what we're picking up here. Again, I'm going to summarize some of these. I'm going to summarize some of the chapters tonight because they are exhaustive. They're just Paul's trial. And I don't want to just sit here reading for 20 minutes straight without any commentary. So overview will be more helpful. But let's go into Acts 20 verses 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, remember, these are the leaders of the church in Ephesus. You know, from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I lived among you. 
So this is going to be Paul's, and I'm just going to explain this to you, farewell address to the elders at Ephesus. These are leaders. These are pastors from other areas, elders from other places. Paul is now going to give a farewell address. Paul is not going to, in his farewell address, explain a complicated Bible passage. He's not going to say, okay, this is my last message to you guys. Here's a list of 10 things to do. Paul's going to talk about himself and his own personal conduct among the churches. And the goal of this, Paul saying this is, listen, you know how I lived. And so you know how you should live as an elder or leader, because I lived by example. I set an example for you to follow. This is what gave Paul the confidence to say, follow me as I follow Christ. There is something to be said about Christian leaders' conduct, the way that Christian leaders talk to people, the way they live their lives, the way they're patient or not, the, the way if they're humble or not, if they're kind or not, beyond just how good could the guy preach or how good could the guy teach, I'm also looking at how good are they with their wives? How good are they with their children? How do they treat the waiter at the restaurant? How do they talk to people on a daily basis? What choices do they make in their personal life in regards to what are they entertained by? What do they listen to? What do they watch? We have some of the largest pastors in America that listen and watch the most ungodly things you can think about that treat people poorly. I'm, I'm, I have to hold back from saying some names here, but if you ask their ex-staff, they'll tell you they, they were treating people poorly, just like a dictator, poorly. I've been with some of the biggest preachers in this country that I've looked up to, and then I go to dinner with them, and they don't know how to treat the waiter. They're rude. They don't leave a tip. They're bitter. They're, you know, short wind. They're, they're short-tempered. And I'm going like, man, what about conduct? This is what Paul was saying. You know the manner that I lived among you. You knew I wasn't this bitter, angry guy that didn't know how to talk to people. Paul said, I lived this thing out by example, and I believe we're coming to a day where leaders are going to live it out not just preach it behind the pulpit because if i'm going to listen to you preach i want to also see that you have the lifestyle i want to see that you're kind and patient and you're a servant and you're willing to serve others and i want to be that that's what i strive for i want to actually live that out not just preach it but i want to live it out because again there's so many pastors and leaders that are just rude they're just rude they're just not nice to be around it's all about them i've been in many many green rooms that sounded more like locker rooms where all the pastors and leaders and preachers did was talk about themselves how good they were how good their ministry was that was not how paul was or how paul lived so acts 20 19 through 21 remember this is his last address to these leaders in ephesus these leaders of the church in Ephesus. Acts 20, 19 through 21. This is Paul's conduct. Now he's going to describe it. Serving the Lord with all humility. I love this. This is the first thing Paul keys in on is humility. Thank you, Lord. He says, with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you, and I taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is describing here that he's an intimate leader. He's not distant from people. He's not impersonal. He's not a leader that you couldn't talk to or a leader that you couldn't get to. Paul is a personal leader and he's showing vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities he has with these elders. He says that he had danger. He said, I was in the face of personal danger because I did the Lord's work with humility and intensity. Paul was a very humble man. This is the key, humility. If you wanna be a leader, you have to humble yourself. Now, humility is not 
thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's what humility is. So it's not saying like, I'm a nobody and God can't use me and I'm just humble. You know, I'm, I'm lame. I can't. That's false humility. Humility is I'm going to think of myself less, not less of myself, but of myself less. And I'm going to regard others above myself. I'm going to keep stay in that place of humility where I'm leaning on God, where I'm going after God and where I'm living a humble life. I'm not going to be above reproach. I'm not going to think I've arrived. I'm not going to think, oh, nobody can tell me what to do. I'm Isaiah Saldivar. That's pride. I'm not going to sit here and say, I'm always right. Everything I say is the way everyone else is wrong. That's pride. All these issues that leaders have, Paul starts out with, I've come in humility. Like I've walked this thing out. I haven't been distant from you. I've been going through trials. No matter what the loss of his reputation was or public outrage, Paul says, I didn't hesitate to tell you what you needed to hear. I wasn't coming and telling you what you wanted to hear. I'm telling you what you needed to hear. So he pursued his teaching ministry, his evangelism everywhere he went. Anyone that would listen, he said publicly and from house to house. So Paul had humility. He's telling these guys, this is how I live my life. I preached whenever you guys needed me to. I didn't hold back. I said what was needed to say. I faced trials and I preached publicly and house to house. And Paul invited anybody in, whatever their cultural background was, he called them to leave their sins and turn to God and put their faith in Christ. This was the message that Paul preached right here in verses 21, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he testified to. Paul gives us and summarizes, I'm testifying to the Jews and the Greeks. What is the message Paul's preaching? Repentance and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we preach, y'all. We need to preach, repent, turn to God. God calls, according to the book of Acts, all men everywhere to repent, and then putting our faith in Christ after that. Acts 20, 22 through 27. And see now, this is Paul speaking his last address to these people. Again, we're heading towards the end of the book of Acts. And see now, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. <laughs> that's, that's powerful right there. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish the race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent, of the blood of all men. That's a very powerful statement. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So this is Paul's goodbye statement right here. Very interesting. He had spent seven to eight years establishing churches in this area. So imagine spending seven to eight years in this area. Now you have all the elders and leaders of the area. And Paul is saying, I've done my job. History shows he's never going to return. This would be the last address Paul gives. He'll never come back to this area for the rest of his life. And a statement Paul makes I want to key in on is, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Now, this is a Jewish way of saying, I faithfully carried out what God told me to do. And that responsibility was to preach and teach. And so now, if people chose to reject God and the gospel, Paul says, my hands are now clean because my job was to present the gospel to them. And as a watchman, I didn't fail to sound the alarm. Our job is to sound the alarm. And once we preach the gospel, once we sound the alarm and proclaim the gospel to somebody, we are no longer responsible. So to wash someone's blood off your hands means 
I've shared my faith with them. I gave them the gospel and I'm no longer responsible. The results are up to God. This is what Paul was saying. Like I, my, I, I am innocent of the blood of all men. I have shared, the Bible says all of Asia heard the gospel, heard the word of the Lord. Paul says, I've shared, I've done what I had to do. You may have family members right now and friends right now that don't know God, that you've never shared your faith with. And in essence, the, their blood is on your hands because if they die and stand before God and God sent you to, to tell them, you would be the reason they didn't hear the gospel. So when you look at the Old Testament, specifically Jeremiah, and he talks about that the blood has been washed off his hands or I no longer have the blood on my hands and many of the prophets would speak like this. They were saying, now that I've given them the message, I'm no longer responsible for continuing on. My hands are washed. It is not our job to make people get converted. It is our job to share the gospel with them. And so I wonder, and this is a very serious question I would ask, whose blood is on our hands? Not only me, I'm thinking about it for my own life, but think about in your life, what family, what friend, what person are you around? I'm not saying you got to go to the Walmart or go to the corner. I'm talking about the people around you that God has sent you to minister to that you haven't talked to. Is there blood on your hands? Do you have cousins that's blood are on your hands? Do you have aunts or uncles right now that's blood are on your hands? Do you have family or friends or someone at work or that coworker that you've been going like, man, I really wanna share my faith with them and that their blood is right now on your hands and it would be a devastating thing for them to pass into eternity and go to hell because somebody didn't share the gospel with them because God placed you. I don't think anything's by accident. So that means the people in my life around me right now God has placed them there and their blood is on my hands and I'm responsible to preach the gospel to them. And Paul says, by preaching the kingdom of God, I'm innocent of the blood of men. And Paul knows I'm getting ready to finish the race. He goes, I don't, I know that I'm going to face tribulations. I know that I'm going to face trial. In fact, Paul says, chains and tribulations await me. He's like, I already know I'm going to be beat. I'm going to be locked up. I'm going to be in chains. He says, but none of these things move me. And I love that he says they don't move me because I don't want to be moved by the opinion of people. I don't want to be swayed or moved by persecution, especially going into these last days that we're in and the last days we're going to go into in the tribulation period. I don't want to be moved. I want to be like, man, I know there's tribulation ahead of me, but it, it doesn't move me. And here's why it doesn't move me. This is what Paul said, because I don't count my life dear to myself. This is what Paul said. I don't count my life dear to myself. In other words, my life doesn't really matter to me. I don't have this thing where I'm like, oh, I don't want to die. I love my life. And I don't know what I would do if I died tomorrow. And, uh, and this hanging on to our own life and this fear of death all the time. You know, the Bible says God will deliver you from the fear of death. Paul says, my life, it's not dear to me. I, I honestly, I don't care about it. In fact, in one place, Paul said, I would rather die. I would rather die and go be with God. That's what Paul says. He goes, but for your sake, I'm going to stay down here to help y'all. Because if I died, you wouldn't get this preaching is what Paul was saying. And so Paul, this idea of hanging on to our life, I don't want to die. I just want to live till I'm 90. God bless you if that's you. But I'm like, listen, 70, 80, I mean, Lord, take me home. Like, I don't, I don't regard my life dear to myself. And when God lets me pass on to be with him, then it is what it is. I'm not looking to, hey, I want to hang on to every bit of life and I want to make sure that my life is, I just want to serve God and I don't consider my life dear to myself as Paul would say, because Paul's goal in life was to testify. And I believe, really believe that the, the only reason I've been put on this earth is to testify to the good news of the gospel. That that is my life's purpose and life, my life's goal. And once I've accomplished that, I'm ready for the Lord to take me home. 
One commentator I want to read said this in Acts 20, 22. Paul uses a phrase that shows how the Lord reveals the direction he wants his people to go and the things he wants them to do. Paul uses the phrase bound in the spirit. And that's in Acts 20, 22. In the original Greek, that means the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit living in the Christian provides the moral motivation to do the right thing, the thing that Jesus taught us to do. Christians are not forced by outward rules and regulations or expectations, but the compelling motivation for our choices comes from within. The desire. This is what the commentator is saying. The, the bound in the spirit, it means I'm bound to what the spirit wants me to do. I'm tied to what the Holy Spirit wants me to do. I go where the Holy Spirit wants me to go. And that is what Paul was saying in Acts 20, 22, chapter 20, verse 22, when he said, I'm bound in the spirit. I'm bound to Christ. I'm bound to the Holy Spirit. And I go where he wants me to go. Acts 20, 28 through 31. Therefore, this is his, now his charge to the leaders. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to, the she to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, this is Paul speaking, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men are going to rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. So this is Paul describing the job of an elder. Now these guys that were calling elders, you'd call them a pastor. This would be the pastor of your church or the pastors. So that's what an elder would be. Nowadays, we just call them pastors. In the book of Acts, they were called elders which is the biblical term for, uh, for them. But Paul describes the job of the elder, the overseer, what we call today as a pastor. He goes, here's your job description. Protect the flock, not just from the enemy, but from false teachers and from deception. And some points he makes that I want to draw out of this, Acts 20, is you didn't choose your job. He says, you are an overseer because the Holy Spirit made you one. That's the exact words of Paul. This idea, and I got to be careful where I go here because I don't want to discourage anybody from being a pastor or a leader or a preacher. Paul actually talks people out of being a teacher of the word. He goes, I, you shouldn't desire to preach and teach or you shouldn't desire to teach because you'll be held to a higher standard on judgment day. But this idea that you can just decide to be a pastor and go interview to be a pastor. And as long as you have good networking skills, you're good looking and you're good at marketing, then you get hired to be a pastor. Like that's, that's what happens in America now. You don't have to have a prayer life. You don't have to live holy. It's like, oh, you talk to people good. We're going to make you a pastor. This is this idea of just making yourself a pastor is not biblical because Paul says here, the Holy Spirit chose you. The Holy Spirit made you one. So if you are an overseer or a leader in the body of Christ biblically, it should be because the Holy Spirit made you one. There's a lot of pastors that burn out, they get tired, they leave the ministry. And I think many of them that do, it's because God didn't call them to the ministry. They wanted to be because of whatever reason, maybe they grew up wanting, but the Holy Spirit is the one that chooses us, marks us. I was getting hired as a police officer when I got saved. I was an atheist police officer, getting hired as a police officer, as an atheist. Have a, I have a degree right now in administration of justice. I don't know, maybe some of you don't know that. And right a month before graduating college, I was starting the hiring process at the sheriff's department. Already pretty much had the job locked in because I had family and my mom worked there. And my mom's an officer and all that. And God immediately, the day I got saved and God spoke to me, he said, you're not going to do law enforcement. So God told me you're going to be a preacher. I didn't choose this life. This life chose me. I didn't say one day and go, hmm. What would be a good job? Maybe I should preach the gospel. That would be a great, easy job to have. Not at all. It was the Holy Spirit choosing me. And this is what we see in Acts 20. 
He goes, your job is to protect the flock because God paid for the church, Paul, Paul says, with his own blood. So the church is not the pastors, it's God's. It's, it doesn't belong to the pastor. We're shepherds, but it's not our sheep. Like all of you guys, this is not my online church. This is God's online church. My church that I go to and I'm a part of is not my church. It's God's church. We are just shepherd. I'm just a shepherd and an overseer because the Holy Spirit has made you one. And then interesting, Paul says, some of you listening to me right now, you're going to want to possess the church for yourself. You're going to become possessive over the church and you're going to begin to speak perverse things and you're going to get people to follow you instead of God. That's what Paul says. Some of you are going to rise up speaking perverse things, things against the gospel and the Bible, and you're going to create your own little following and you're going to draw people away from following Christ into following you. I don't got to go on on that. That's happening all over in our churches today. And then he talks about, we need to be watchmen. We need spiritual overseers. Okay. So that was Paul's charge to them. Look, there's going to be some come. They're not going to spare the flock. They're going to be vicious wolves. They're going to destroy the flock. They're going to bring destructive doctrines and everything else like that. As pastors, we need to be watchmen. Acts 20, 32 through 35. So now brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one silver or gold or apparel, which is clothing. Yes. You yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul is again reminding them, these, this last statement he's going to give them, reminding them of his hard work ethic and his desires in the ministry and an exa example of a godly life. So he says, I serve without thought of material gain. So when I got into the ministry, Paul's saying, I wasn't doing it for material gain. I didn't come to become a preacher and say, oh, I can make a bunch of money. Oh, oh, I can do this or I can do that. He says, no, I wasn't looking at for silver, gold or apparel. I wasn't looking at for nice silver, you know, golden linen clothing and all these expensive jewelry and all the stuff that people are wearing. He goes, no, I didn't come for these things. My motives were not for material gain. It was to advance the gospel. That's what my motives were when I started. I, I think very few preachers start for money because it doesn't pay good. It's not like I'm like, oh, let me go, you know, leave my job trying to get hired to the sheriff's department, making like $7,000 a month or whatever it was going to be to try to go preach in my living room and make nothing, make $400 a month at Starbucks. Like I didn't go into it thinking I'm going to make a bunch of money. I'm going to be this preacher. And, th and that was not Paul's motivation here. And then Paul reminds them, I wasn't afraid to get my hands dirty to, to support myself and to support others. We know this because we've already gone over. Paul was a tent maker. So he wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. He wasn't afraid to work to help the weak or the poor. And he got fulfillment in giving rather than receiving. That was what he quoted. He says, bless, he quotes Jesus by saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Think about that statement. This is the only place in the Bible that they're going to quote that, that thing that Jesus says there. You are more blessed to give than you are to receive. That's an interesting statement because you might say, I got $100 or I got $500 or I got $1,000 and you're blessed. You're like, yes, Lord, thank you for blessing me. But the Bible says if you give away, say that $100 or $500 or $1,000 or whatever it is, you're more blessed by giving that away than, that, than receiving that. And it shows the way God's economy work. It's about pouring out. It's about helping. Acts 20, 36 through 38. We're almost done with Acts 20 here. We're doing good on time. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept freely. And they fell on Paul's neck and kissed Paul, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is sad, and this is the reaction of how Paul ran things. Uh, let me say that uh, better. 
This reaction shows how Paul ran things. The reaction of these elders and pastors under Paul that Paul was leading as an apostle was tears. They were crying, kneeling down, kissing Paul, crying, and, and you know hugging his neck because Paul did not run the church like a CEO, but he ran the church like a loving brother. You can see Paul was involved in their lives by the strong bond that they had by the fact that they were crying. When Paul left with the announcement that they would never, he would never see them again, they broke down and they cried. Paul was not this scary authoritative figure. He was a spiritual father, he was a friend, and he was someone whose their lives had come connected with. So for some people right now listening that are on staff at a church, if your pastor was like, hey, I'm gonna go plant another church somewhere this is the last time you'll ever see me, you would have a you may you you might have a party on the inside because of the way he rules and the way he dictates and the way he dominates and the way he's a hard leader. For some of you, you wouldn't cry. You'd go to lunch after and be like, yes, pastor's going to another church. That means we won't have him lording over us. But that was not what happened with Paul. Paul was a loving, humble leader. This is what I want to be. I, w- I would want people to cry. I would want people to go, man, Isaiah, we love you. We appreciate you. Paul led this lifestyle with humility. This is actually what drew me to the church I go to now because Pastor James Bird, shout out to Pastor James of anyone from Life Songs watching where he's watching. This is the kind of guy my senior pastor at my church is. He's this loving, kind, caring, humble, just really like the nicest guy you'll ever meet. And he's not this dictator. He doesn't lord over people. He lets people use their gifts. He lets different people preach. He lets people that had just got saved testify. And he just, he's free. If that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do, let's do it. If you want to get on stage, and then do it. If you, if one of the leaders has a word, then get up and give it. Let's let the Holy Spirit move. There's not this lording over this dictatorship, this authoritative figure of a hard leader. This is literally what made me go like, this is the church I want to be a part of, where everybody's leading as elders. Everybody's leading together. And there's love. There's unity. If you know Pastor James Bird and you're part of LifeSong, you know what I'm talking about, but there's just that sense of humility. And guys, I have been around hundreds of pastors. And when I say hundreds, I literally mean hundreds of pastors. But man, the pastor that I am under right now, Pastor James Bird at LifeSong that I'm a part of, one of the nicest, most humble leaders that empowers other people just like Paul did. Paul was not, I'm the only leader. No, Paul empowered other people. So let's wrap up this this uh, chapter 20 here, and they'll talk to you guys about what we're going to move into. It's a little bit different, but I'm going to talk to you guys about it in a minute. So Paul left Ephesus for Macedonia, where he encouraged the Christians with several companions. He talked about his travels, went throughout, talked about how he wanted to get to Jerusalem by Passover, and uh, he stopped and talked to the, in uh, Miletus, he talked to the leaders of the church of Ephesus for a final farewell. He told the leaders, basically, follow my example. He talked about his willingness to die for the gospel. He warned the leaders that people are going to rise up from among them, and they're not going to spare the flock, and they're going to be really ungodly leaders. And then Paul committed them to live an unselfish life, a giving lifestyle, to work hard, and then said something that's found nowhere else in the Bible that Jesus said it's better to give than it is to receive. And then Paul eventually will leave and see them off with hugs, kisses, and tears. And that would be the last time they saw their beloved brother Paul from seven to eight years of working with him and him establishing the church in Asia and all these different areas areas, they wouldn't see Paul any longer. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to overview chapters 21 through 27, and then we're going to go into detail chapter the end of 27, chapter 28, because if I go through all of this, it'll take me another month or two, and I don't want to spend a month or two of Monday live streams on Paul's trial. So it's going to be much better for me to overview. I've gone back and forth. I've spent hours thinking about this, reading through this, seeing what I was going to do. But it's, again, I would have to read straight 20 to 30 minutes just in some of these chapters trying to get through all of them. So I don't want to spend another two months just on Paul's trial because chapters... 
22, uh, 21 through 27 are basically Paul being persecuted like we've seen before and basically Paul's trial. And so we're going to we're going to go, we've been six months on the series. I'm going to overview for you guys exactly what happens through each chapter, like we do with the book of Revelation one hour at that time. I'm going to overview, and then we're going to move into the last chapter, which is very important, so don't leave. And we're going to move into also chapter 27. But let's overview. First, we'll overview chapters 21 and 22. Again, we're not going to go verse by verse because these are Paul's trial and persecution, and it's descriptive. It would just be me reading like six or seven chapters straight. And I don't want to just sit here and read six chapters straight. So chapters 21 and 22. 22. Paul ends up going from these leaders. He heads to Jerusalem where he knew he's headed for danger. Remember, he's trying to get there before Pentecost and the other fellow Christians convince him not to go. And there's a prophet in Acts 21, 1 through 14 named Agabus who prophesied that Paul would be arrested and turned over to the Romans. So what we're going to see is the persecution Paul's going to go through was prophesied about. Paul knew he was going to go through this trial and tribulations because Agabus the prophet said, Paul, you're going to get arrested. You're going to be turned over to the Romans. But Paul was not afraid. It didn't stop Paul from going on and doing what God had called him to do. In Jerusalem, Paul finally arrives. He meets Christian leaders. That's Acts 21, 15 through 19. After exchanging works that God has done, testimonies among the Gentiles and Jews, Paul proposes a plan, or they propose a plan for Paul to purify himself, to put down all the rumors that he was guilty of teaching an anti-Jewish Jewish message. Paul was accused of being anti-Jewish. They were saying, you're teaching no circumcision, you're teaching this. So they proposed a plan for Paul to participate in a purification ceremony or rite of passage so they can put down the rumors. But the plan backfired and Paul was recognized while he was in the temple by his enemies who falsely accused him of teaching anti-Jewish messages and taking a Gentile into the temple. A riot breaks out, as we've seen before. Roman soldiers end up rescuing Paul from the murderous mob. Paul basically goes and asks the Roman commander to let him speak to the people from the top of the fortress stairs. He told the story of his conversion, which he's done in the past. When he mentioned being sent to the Gentiles, the crowd began to cry out for his death. And just as the Romans were about to interrogate him by flogging, Paul tells them as they're going to flog him that he's a Roman citizen. They stopped torturing him and Paul was taken into protective custody and treated with great respect because he was a Roman citizen. So Acts 21 through 22 is talking about this whole chaos that breaks out. We see this all through Acts. This is probably like the, what, the seventh or eighth time that Paul has gotten in trouble for preaching the message to these Jews. And they're accusing Paul again of false pretenses. He's teaching anti-Jewish messages. He's teaching against the things of God. A riot ensues. Paul ends up getting flogged. And then Paul says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. They stop flogging him, but he's still in protective custody. So that is where we're at. We're going to lead into uh, chapter 23 here. The Roman tribune calls a meeting of the Sanhedrin to clarify the charges against Paul because the Sanhedrin wants Paul persecuted. They want Paul on trial. Paul proclaims innocence, which he was. The high priest ordered him struck. Paul struck back with charges and prophecies against the high priest. Paul declared that the key issue that got him into trouble was belief in the resurrection. The Sanhedrin and the Pharisees begin to shout at each other because some of them believed in the resurrection. Other of the Sadducees did not believe in the re resurrection. Remember, the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Roman troops, again, rescued Paul. This is in Acts 23, 10 through 11 from being mauled by the council members. And his cell, Jesus reassured Paul he's doing what he's been called to do and would soon be a witness in Rome. So Paul has an encounter there. 
40 terrorists take an oath to kill Paul before they eat again. And some rulers of the city join the conspiracy. Paul's nephew discovered the plot and told Paul. So again, the reason why I'm overviewing this is because it's a lot of reading and it's a descriptive story of all the persecutions Paul's going through here. Um, before he gets to Rome. A large force of soldiers and cavalry escorted Paul to Caesarea, where he was turned over to Governor Felix for trial. So now we are in Acts 24 through 26. This is going to be Paul's official trial where he's going to stand before Felix, and this would ultimately lead him, which we'll talk about later, would actually lead Paul into Rome. So we're going to overview chapters 24 all the way through 26. This is Paul's trial. Again, we don't need to read through it all because it's going to go over the same thing that we've been talking about, and it's going to keep quoting the same thing that we've already been reading. So for the sake of 20 minutes of reading, we're going to overview it here. So Paul appears before Governor Felix in Caesarea. Paul pleads not guilty because Paul's not guilty, repeating his contention that he's on trial because he believed in the resurrection. So Paul's like trying to really make it clear on his trial. I'm not being persecuted and I'm not being, you know, tortured and martyred and persecuted and all of these things. I'm not being this because I'm preaching a false gospel or I'm anti-Jewish. I'm, they're doing this to me because I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees don't believe in it. That's where the contention is. So Felix ends up, the governor, postponing the verdict and keeps Paul in prison for two years. Felix has several conversations with Paul, and the Bible says in Acts 24, 23 to 26, that Felix trembled as Paul spoke. So for two years, Paul's going to sit in prison waiting for this trial, and Felix is going to continue to have conversations with Paul. Felix was then recalled, Festus who's the new governor, takes his place. He asked Paul if he would willing to be tried in Jerusalem. Knowing of the assassination plot, Paul used his Roman citizen right to appeal Caesar. So he's saying, listen, you're going to go on this trial, Paul. Do you want to go into Jerusalem on trial? But Paul already knows there's an assassination attempt all my life in Jerusalem. So if I go to Jerusalem, they're going to assassinate me. So Paul says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. Do I not have the right to appeal to Caesar? Send me to Rome. Let me appeal before Caesar. Take it to the highest Supreme Court of the day and let me appeal there because if I go to Jerusalem and stand before all these religious people, they're going to kill me. So King Agrippa ends up visiting uh, Festus. A meeting is scheduled to hear Paul. Paul basically told an audience of government and military leaders about his conversion. So that's in Acts 25. Again, this is Paul's trial here. When Paul spoke of Jesus' resurrection, Festus called him mad. Paul asked Agrippa if he believed the prophets and the king. Uh, if he believed the prophets and the king responded with, very interesting, this is the one thing I want to pull out of Acts 26 here. He responds with, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. This is interesting because there's so many people like King Agrippa, even in this chat, that are almost persuaded to be Christian. And what's interesting to me about the word almost is the word is an oxymoron. It's the word all. Think about this. It's the word all, which means everything, and the word most, which means not everything. So the word almost is all, which is everything, but not everything. So it's described like everything but something. And what King Agrippa was saying was, I've almost been persuaded, like I've almost been persuaded to give everything, but there's something stopping me. And this is what holds us back today. We want to go all in for God and we want to be radical, but there's so many almost Christians in the church where there's that one thing stopping us. It's like, I want to give God all, but there's just one thing, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a hobby. Are you guys hearing me tonight? Whether it's an addiction or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a family member, we're almost Christians. All and most, it's an oxymoron principle because Jesus says, I want it all, give it all to me. 
I want you to lay down everything. I don't want you to be half in and half out. I don't want you to live on the fringes of a religious system. Don't give God almost everything. Don't be an almost Christian because being almost saved is not being saved. Imagine standing before God and God sends you to hell and you're in hell going, I almost made it to heaven. Is almost making it to heaven going to heaven? No. Was this man, this king that said, you almost persuaded me? Was this King Agrippa? Going to heaven? No, because there's no such thing as almost going to heaven. So don't be an almost Christian. Give God everything. Jesus has laid all down and follow me. That's the Christian life. It's a life of denial. It's not a life of almost. So maybe you're almost. Maybe there's this one thing tonight as you're listening. You say, Isaiah, I'm an almost Christian. I almost was saved. I almost served God. How many people do you think are right now burning in hell that were almost saved? How many people do you think right now are burning A trillion years will go by as if it was the first day they started burning, being tortured and tormented by demons right now as we speak, that were almost saved. They said, man, I almost responded to the altar call. Imagine in hell for a trillion years, you're rethinking the memories of, I almost responded to that altar call. I mean, just how, what a mind numbing thought this is to be burning for a trillion years in hell and it's just day one. And all you can think about was, I was almost there. I almost went up to that. I almost gave God everything. I heard every message and every message. I was almost, and there's, I I would say millions of people, billions burning in hell that were almost saved. But the question is, they're still burning in hell. Are they still in hell or are they in heaven? They're still in hell because almost is not enough. Judas kissed Jesus. Jesus is the door to heaven. Some say Judas kissed the door of heaven and didn't make it in. Imagine that kissing the cheek of Jesus and not making it in because he almost got in. I don't want to be an almost Christian. I want to be bold. The righteous will be bold on judgment day. I want to know for certain because I've given God everything. Acts 27, King Agrippa Agrippa agrees with Governor Festus that Paul did did nothing worth capital punishment or imprisonment so he can be released so that he can be sent to Rome to let the Roman Empire handle his case. The decision was out of the governor's hands now. Paul is now being sent to Rome. Roman law required that an appeal to Caesar had to be carried to completion, so Paul would stand in trial in Rome. So there was an appeal made to Caesar. It had to see through to completion. You couldn't cut it off halfway through. Paul had to stand in trial before the Roman government. The trip would be sailing, and this is the most way, this would be what he does to get there. So now we're going to go back to verse by verse, okay? Because again, that overview would have taken me a month and a half if I did verse by verse and stopped every time. But now we're going to go verse by verse in Acts 27. So pick back up with me in Acts 27, 1 through 12. This is the last final two chapters in the book of Acts, and then we are done. After six months, we are done here. So Acts 27, verses 1 through 2. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners, one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustine regiment. So entering a ship, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. uh, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. These names, I'm telling y'all, I'm so glad we don't have names like this anymore. Now, important to note, the Roman fleet that they're going on doesn't have, they don't have passenger ships. So this wasn't like a sailing trip where they're going to go and have a nice seat and go sail across. They're going to be stored with the cargo. That's where they put passengers in the Roman fleet. The Roman fleet did not have passenger ships, only cargo ships. So they're going to be shoved with all the cargo. One commentator said, Luke, as noted, this is what the commentator says, Luke, as noted, was with Paul on this voyage. Another apostolic coworker, 
Aristarchus, the Macedonian, was also there. It is possible that Luke signed on as the ship's doctor. Another intriguing possibility mentioned by some scholars is that both Luke and Aristarchus, uh, how do I say this? Aristarchus, Aristarchus, Aristarchus went as Paul's slaves. Roman law permitted prominent Roman citizens under arrest to take one to two slaves with them for personal needs. The possibility of the two men might actually volunteer to become slaves in order to stay with Paul on a one of the most dangerous trips reveals the surprising depths of the love they had for the Apostle Paul and the Lord that they served. Continuous church growth depends on the willingness of Christians to make personal sacrifices to go to the ends of the earth to tell Jesus' story. So what he's saying is, basically the idea is either Luke was a doctor on the ship, that's how Luke ends up being with Paul, because Luke wasn't on trial, or Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, was Paul said that he was Paul's slave to be able to go on the ship with Paul. Okay, Acts 27.3, and the next day we landed at Sidon, Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. So Paul ends up winning over this guy that's running the crew, Julius, and when they land, he says, you can go receive care and go with your friends. Acts 27, 4 through 9 is going to descri describe some of the journey as they head to Rome, but I want to pick up in Acts 27, 9 through 12. So we're going to pick up here. I know we're going around. There's a lot of descriptive, a lot of places they go and st places they stop, but I want to go Acts 27, 9 through 12. Paul advised them saying, men, so they're going to go on this voyage to Rome. Paul advised them saying, this is in Acts 27 verse 9, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. If by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southeast and southwest and northwest and winter there. So Paul is warning them, listen, if you go down this path, there's going to be danger. Not only cargo, but lives would be lost. So Paul is there to warn them of danger and the danger of the choices that they're going to make. This is what's going to happen if you continue down this path. And I really wish somebody would have told me this when I wasn't saved. Isaiah, you're on this journey, you're on this ship, you're going down this life, and the choices you make are going to cause you to be shipwrecked if you don't make the right choices. There's consequences to your choices, to what lies ahead. Jesus did this when he warned of hell. Jesus' warning of hell was Jesus saying, this is where you're headed if you don't repent and put your faith in me. So this idea that we shouldn't warn people of their consequences or their choices, Paul is here warning them, if you take this journey, you're going to shipwreck your life. You're going to shipwreck your faith, not only in a natural. I, I, when I read the Bible, I don't just want to think of the natural context, but the spiritual context is the journey that you're going on, this life of compromise, this life of division, of hiding secret sin, of watching pornography, of living for yourself, that's going to end in shipwreck. That's why in 1 Timothy 1.19, Paul says, cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some of you have deliberately violated your conscience, and as a result, the fa their faith has been shipwrecked. So he said, because you keep violating what your conscience tells you, it keeps telling you, don't do this, you shouldn't go there, you know it's wrong. He says, but because you're violating it, you're going to be shipwrecked. And so this is not only a natural thing in the context, of course, Paul's telling them naturally, we're going to wreck the ship if we go on. But the, Bi the Bible says that the man didn't listen. The officer listened to the captain 
and the owner of the ship more than he listened to Paul. And the reality is this, when we warn people of the dangers of their choices, they're not always going to listen. Sometimes maybe we don't have an experience in an area, just like Paul wasn't a sailor, but Paul's warning them, don't do this. It's still our job to warn them of danger. It's still our job to tell them. So don't let the fact that they don't want to listen to you stop you from telling them. Jesus was telling fishermen how to fish. I mean, think about this. They're like, Jesus, you're not even a fisherman. You're a carpenter, but you're telling us where to throw our nets and how to fish. So they listened to Jesus, even though it wasn't his specialty and their life was blessed. So even if people don't listen, we're going to keep telling them. we got to keep warning them. If they think they're nu- we're nuts, we keep warning them. If they think we're crazy, we keep warning them, even if they don't listen. In fact, most of the time in the Old Testament, God would tell the prophets, the people are not going to listen to you, but preach to them anyways. Even if they don't listen, I still want you to preach to them. So don't let somebody saying, I don't want to hear it, stop you from sharing your faith. Bill Wees on Sunday shared a testimony of a lady that God said, you need to witness to her. He was selling her home. He was a real estate investor, a real realtor. She said, don't you talk to me about God. I don't want to hear about God. Don't you dare say one word to me. And Bill, we said, I knew the Holy Spirit told me to witness to her. And she said, you don't tell me about God. Don't say one word, sell my house. And that's it. And he said, he got real stern with her and said, sit down. I'm going to talk to you about God and the gospel. And she was angry and mad. And he sat there and shared the gospel with her and shared the love of God and all these things drove home, all that, an hour goes by, he gets a call that the lady had died. So that prompting of Bill Wee's sharing with her and she didn't want to hear it and she didn't respond to the message he said. He, he was just like, I know the Holy Spirit's saying to share. I know the Holy Spirit's telling me, even though she said she didn't want to hear it. An hour later, she passed away. That's a true story. And so this is why when we're warning people, they might not want to hear it, we still need to continue to warn them because you never know when someone's going to pass away. I've had services where I've preached a, a radical, urgent message, and the person that I knew in that service the next week died and never responded to the message. When people die, I often think about what was the last message they ever heard. Like, was it a soft, watered-down message, or was it a repentance? It was an urgency. So we need to be urgent even if people don't want to listen. Acts 27, 13 through 18 is going to describe the weather getting increasingly worse, so we won't go over that. Acts 27, 18 through 20 says, and because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. So now they're on this ship. The weather is getting terrible. As Paul said, we shouldn't go. And on the third day, the Bible says, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we'd be saved was finally given up. So here they are on a ship. Paul's heading to Rome. There's a massive storm. They can't see the sun or the stars for days in this storm. And they're throwing things overboard to survive. This is 200, the Bible says, and 76 passengers on board, and they would see neither sun or stars for several days. And what's interesting is, in those days, they don't have a compass, so they followed the sun and stars. And because the storm was going out, they couldn't see the sun. They lost sight of the sun, S-U-N. And I sometimes wonder if in the midst of storms in our life, let's look at the spiritual side of it, I wonder in our life, in a spiritual sense, Do we lose sight of the sun, the S-O-N, in the midst of storms? So here they are, lost at sea, because the storm caused them to lose sight of the sun. Here we are in our lives, lost at sea, trouble, storms, trials, losing sight of the S-O-N, the sun, who's Jesus, because we're going through trials. And maybe some of you tonight are watching this broadcast, 
and you're saying, I've lost sight, I've lost track of Jesus, the cloudiness, the darkness, and the storm has caused me to lose Jesus, I want to tell you, it doesn't matter how confused you are, it doesn't matter what your storm looks like, it doesn't matter how violent the winds and the waves are, the sun is always there, he will never leave you nor forsake you, put your trust in him, believe in him, and I'm telling you tonight, Jesus will pull you through the storm. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a storm and I'm going, God, where are you? I can't see you. Everything's cloudy and dark, but I just keep trusting. I keep walking. I keep marching knowing that Jesus is there in the storm. I want to encourage you. And maybe you're battling sickness or disease or, you know, you're going through this or going through that with fam family or friends. You're in the middle of a divorce or foreclosure or you're retiring and your life is changing and you're going through confusion and you're in this storm and you're going, God, where are you? Go to the word of God. Find Jesus in the scripture. If you can't find him anywhere else, you can look to the scripture and read and say, God, I know you'll never leave me. I know you'll never forsake me. Let me just tell someone in the chat. I really feel prophetically somebody needs to hear this. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. If you haven't heard that for a month or two and you're struggling and you came in this broadcast and you said, I just don't know. And there's several thousand people watching. I just don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to survive this, Isaiah. I don't know if I'm going to continue on, Isaiah. I just don't know. I'm telling you right now, you're going to make it. You're not going to drown. You're not going to, you're not going to die. God's hand is going to keep you just like Paul. Think of it, not just in a literal context, but in a spiritual sense. Here's what they begin to do. Throw things overboard. This is what we need to do sometimes so we don't sink, as we need to get rid of things that are weighing us down. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin and weight which easily ensnares us, and let us run it with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us lay aside the sin and the weight. So we don't just lay off sin. We lay off weight, things in our life that are holding us down. So they're, they're throwing out literal things out of the ship, cargo, so they wouldn't drown. But there's areas in our life that we're drowning, we're sinking, and we hang on to, and God's saying, throw it overboard. Whatever is in your life that is not of him tonight, throw it overboard. It's not worth shipwrecking. It's not worth losing your faith. Don't just lay aside the sin, but also the weight. Acts 27, 21 through 26. Someone say that's good in the chat. <laughs> but after a long abstinence from food, then Paul stood up in the midst and said, man, you should have listened to me and you should have not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong to, whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar and indeed God has granted you and all who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. So Paul comes to them and says, listen, you should have listened to me. I told you don't take this journey. I told you don't go down that road. You're going to suffer loss. And this is why I preach so passionately. I want you to avoid shipwreck. I want you to avoid bondage. I know where some of these roads you guys are going down lead. And so we're telling you, don't go down this road. Maybe you have a parent telling you or a friend telling you, hey, don't go down the road of pride. Hey, don't go down that road of lust. Hey, don't go down that road flirting with that girl at work when you're married. All these roads that we end up going down, they lead to destruction. I sit in counseling with people and, you know, they, man, I should have listened to you, Isaiah, five years ago. I sit and talk to them and counsel them. I should have listened to you five years ago. Man, when you told me to do this, I would have avoided all the heartache and pain. And I want to do what Paul did and say, you should have listened to me. I told you that if you went that road and you went to the, with that person, you moved to that place, this was going to happen. I don't say that, but I often think what Paul said, why didn't you listen to me? Now, Paul says, an angel appeared and said, we won't crash 
And here's why all these 275 guys aren't going to die. Because Paul is on the ship. Paul says, the angel said we won't crash because I have to stand before Caesar. And because I'm on the ship, no one's going to die. I remember probably six or seven years ago, this is a true story, flying. I've been in some turbulence, y'all. I've flown... I don't know how many hundred thousands of miles, maybe, I don't know, 100,000, 150,000 a year for eight, nine, 10 years now. And I could remember a time where turbulence going on. And one time we were in turbulence and people were screaming. Everyone was sitting down. Things were flying everywhere. And this lady next to me was crying. And again, people were screaming and I don't, I don't stress. I don't worry because I know that I'm on the plane. I'm like, Lord, I know you're not letting this plane go down. I got too much stuff to do. And I told her, hey, you know, don't worry. Everything's gonna be fine. I was trying to just be nice and just talk to her a little bit. And hey, do you need prayer? What's going on? And I'm like, it's gonna be fine. We're gonna be okay. It's just turbulence. You know, a lot of these people that fly in these planes are first time. So I'm like, oh, she must be new. She's crying, thinking we're literally gonna die. And she really was thinking we're gonna go down. The plane was doing some crazy things. It was free falling and all that stuff when you had air pockets, all that. And she, she wanted to know, she says, what, what are you so confident? How do you know that we're not going to go down? What, why are you so confident? Why aren't you stressing? And I told her, because I'm on my way to preach at a conference. God is not going to let this plane go down. And we both laughed, but I was actually serious. I'm headed to a conference to preach. We're in turbulence. There, there's no way God's going to let the plane go down if you're on the plane. There's no way God's going to let that car crash. If you're on the car, you have a divine assignment from God. You don't think God can keep you? You don't think the hand of God can keep you on that plane? So stop being so afraid of death. There's an assignment on your life. God's hand of protection is on you. Do not be so scared all the time. Paul says, listen, because I'm on the ship, all of you get to survive. Now, I'm not saying that that plane would have went down if I wasn't in there, because I don't believe that was the case. But the point was, there's no chance that this plane's going down. I got a conference to preach at. This is the life that we should be living. We have this divine protection. I'm never afraid in the car. I'm never afraid on planes. I've never one time for one second, I'm not being prideful here. I've never one time in all the turbulence and free falling and all the craziness I've gone at storms and couldn't land for three hours, all that I've been through on planes, never one second have I ever been afraid of death. Because one, if I die, that's the best thing ever because I'm graduating. But two, no chance that God's going to let my assignment end right now. So stop being afraid of dying. If you die, then God's, then your assignment's over. Then that's graduation. But living our lives always afraid in the car, in the plane, in the storm, like it's just not a way to live your life. God says, I'm going to spare you, Paul. And because of you, everyone else is going to be blessed. And that should be the life we live. Hey, everybody around me is blessed because of me. That's really what it was, the life we should live. And now they all listen to Paul. Let me just say this. If you stay with people during the storm, they're going to begin to listen to you. This is how you build relationship with people. This is how when all hell breaks loose, when everything falls apart, you're there for them. And that person that wouldn't listen to you preach for years, but you said, man, I'm going to stay with you during the storm. I'm going to stay with you during the storm. I'm going to stay with you during the storm. Now that the storm's over, they're going to listen to you because you're with them in the storm. That's why they listen to Paul. They go from not listening to Paul to listening to Paul. I'm preaching good tonight, guys because he stayed with them in the storm. So be patient with people, stay with people. Acts 27, 20, verse 27 through 29 describes them sailing. I won't go into that, but we are gonna to go to Acts 27, verses 30 through 32. And then watch what happens here, it's interesting. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, the lifeboats, that's what a skiff is, under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiffs and let them fall off. So Paul said, listen, everybody stay in the boat. No one's going to die. But then all of a sudden, these guys get so scared 
they try to jump ship. They try to get their lifeboat. They try to abandon ship. And we as believers, do we not have the tendency to jump ship when times get hard? Whether you're in a church, I'm just gonna find a new church. In a business, I'm just gonna go find somewhere else to work. I'm gonna go do a new business. A marriage, we have a quitting generation. When times get hard, I'll just go get divorced. I'll just go sign a paper. I'll just go, we're just quitters. Our walk with God, one bad thing happens. Oh God, where were you? And we leave God. Paul says, listen, if you try to jump off this ship, if you try to go down on a lifeboat, if you try to find another way out of this journey that you're on, you're not gonna survive. So stop trying to abandon ship. God has it in control. Guys, listen to me tonight. You're going to make it through the storm. Amen. You're going to make it through the trial. Just don't abandon ship. Don't leave God because time's hard. What? I look at people when times get hard, they leave God. In my mind, when times get hard, shouldn't you go towards God? Why would you stop going to church when times are hard? That's when you should start being in the house of God the most. So they try to abandon ship and Paul says, go ahead and try. But if you do, you're going to die. Do not give up. Do not abandon ship. I'm telling you again, do you see the theme here? Don't give up. You're going to make it. I know you're tired. I know you don't feel it. I know you don't know what's going on anymore. I'm just going to leave. It'll be fine. No, it won't. You won't survive outside the ship. Wherever God is, that's where you need to be. So stop trying to abandon ships. Stop trying to jump ship. Do what they did. Cut the lifeboat and let it drift away. That's what the Bible says they did. They cut the lifeboat and let it drift away. The lifeboat represents your old life. It represents the old ties and plan B. Get rid of it. I don't have a plan B. I'm not keeping like, I'm going to keep the sheriff's department idea in the background in case this whole preaching live stream thing doesn't work. What? No. Cut the rope. No plan B. I'm serving God. I'm not going back. Delete her number. Delete his number. Delete the contact. Delete the connection. You know what I'm talking about. Get rid of the lifeboat. Acts 27, 33 through 38, almost there. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food saying, today is the 14th day you've waited and continue without food and eating nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment for this is for your survival since not a hair on your head, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of the all. And they broke it and began to eat and they were all encouraged and also took food he also took food to themselves. And, and in all were 276 persons on the ship. So when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat in the sea. Acts 27, 39 through 41. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto it, which they planned to run the ship if possible. And when they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas meet, they ran the ship around aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up at the violence of the waves. Verses 42 through 44. And the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from doing that and commanded that those who could swim jump overboard and get to land. And the rest, some of the boards and some parts of the ship, they all escaped safely to land. Okay, let's go into Acts 28. Last chapter here we are. We're almost done. 28, 1 through 2. Something amazing is about to happen here. Now when they had escaped, they had found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because the rain was falling and because of the cold. So the first thing they do is build a fire. Okay, we know fire is essential for survival, not only in a natural sense, but in a spiritual sense. You need the fire of God. The fire of God is what's going to keep you praying, keep you fueled, keep you hungry for God. It's what consumes you. The fire never sleeps. It's that desire. It's that 
Pentecost fire that God wants to give you. I want the fire. I pray, Lord, baptize me in the Holy Spirit and fire. Baptize me in your power. I want the fire of God in my life, the passion of God, the zeal of God. So the first thing they do, if we're going to survive on this island, is the natives build them a fire. Acts 28, 3 through 6. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said, no doubt this man is a murderer whom though he's escaped the sea, yet justice does not let him live. But he shook off the snake into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly drop dead. But after they looked for a long time, they saw no harm. They changed their minds and they said that he was a God. So Paul gets bit by a snake and Paul shakes off the snake. This is the power that God gives us to shake off these attacks of the enemy. Again, not just natural sense, but a spiritual sense. We know in the garden, the snake represented the devil. Not that the snake was the devil, but it can represent spiritual attacks that we go through. Shaking off temptation, shaking off attacks, shaking off sickness. God gives us this power. I preached a whole message on shake the snake one time. I won't re-preach it here, but I do have a message floating around somewhere in the archives of I preached this entire story of how Paul shook the snake into the fire and we need to shake the enemy into the fire. Now they thought this was a result of Paul's sin, but you got to realize sometimes we go through storms that look like they're a result of our sin, but it's not. It's just an opportunity for God's glory to show. So don't think that every storm you go through or every bad thing that happens to you is, oh, I must have done something wrong. I must have sinned because sometimes it just is a chance for the glory and the power of God to be revealed. And so again, I want to reiterate Mark where it talks about taking up serpents and them not being able to kill us. This is what that divine protection is. Paul is bit by a snake and he doesn't die from it. That's what Mark 16 is saying. It's not saying that they'll handle deadly snakes and they won't be die of the poison like we should do that in service it's saying divine protection that if the snake bites us we'll survive the bite of the snake so we don't go picking up snakes because mark 16 but god will give us divine protection and this in acts 28 is a fulfillment of what mark is talking about acts 28 7 through 10. In that region, there was a state of an estate of leading citizens of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius, 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 I don't know how to say it, but who cares, lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. Look at what just Paul just did. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and we departed there, provided such things as were necessary. Now, this one part of scripture, this is Acts 28, 7 through 10. Thank you for putting that in the chat, Alexandria. This one part of scripture completely destroys the argument that miracles died out towards the end of the book of Acts. What cessationists will say, those that don't believe in healing is for today and gifts, they'll say, well, towards the end of Acts, healing died out, miracles died out, wrong. Paul literally heals everyone sick on this island in the midst of where the darkest time probably of his life where he's shipwrecked on an island, he heals the entire island. And for three months, Paul is there, you better believe presenting the gospel to him presenting the gospel to him. Think about this, to not just him, but to everybody that's healed on the island. So this idea, those that say, well, the miracles, you know, weaned out towards the end of the book of Acts, that's a lie. It's not weaned out. This is Acts 28. We're in the last chapter at the very end of the book, and Paul heals the entire island, including the man's father, Publius, okay? Whatever his name is, who cares? He heals, he heals the entire island. So the miracle power of God is still alive and well today, as it was in Acts 28. 
Acts 28, 11 through 15. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island and landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we remember three months on the island, now they're doing this. From there, we circled around to reach Regium, and after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Petulia, Patuli, I don't know, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. So we went towards Rome, and from there, when their brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Acts 28, 16 through 22. This describes Paul's arrival in Rome. Again, I won't go through this. It's exhaustive. It's long, but it describes Paul's arrival in Rome. Paul was immediately put on house arrest three days after entering Rome. He introduced himself to the leaders of the Jewish community. He told them about his arrest and his appeal. He declared he was a prisoner for the hope of Israel, and they responded that they didn't hear anything bad about him. So these people, when he gets to Rome, he goes to the Jewish community, and they're like, we haven't heard anything bad about you. Word hadn't traveled yet. And so Paul is going to be on house arrest, chained 24-7 to a guard throughout his time in Rome. Acts 28, 23 through 27. Here we are, final stretch. We are at the five yard line. 28, 23 through 27. The Jewish leaders arranged a meeting. I'm going to summarize it. And a large group of people came to where Paul was staying. From dawn to dusk, Paul told them about Jesus. And he tried to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah by quoting the law of Moses and from the prophets. So, Jewish leaders, people, Paul is chained up on house arrest. And now people, this is in Acts 28, 23 through 27, are coming to Paul as he ministers to them. Now for the finale. This is the last portion of the entire book of Acts. Here's the finale. This is it. Acts 28, 28 through 31. This is it. For six months, we've been going through every other week teaching on this. This is the final paragraph here in all of the book of Acts. This is the finale. Very important. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And when he said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him. And this is very important, okay? This is the last sentence of the book of Acts. And this summarizes Paul's entire life story right here. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. This is Paul's final sentence here in the book of Acts. Paul spends two years in a rented house on house arrest preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. There's still many questions to be answered even as we're done with the book of Acts, like what happened at the trial and other things. But I love the way Luke ends it of Paul preaching the gospel. Paul's journey in the book of Acts starts with him being knocked to the ground. Six months ago, we talked about that. He gets knocked to the ground and God saying, why are you persecuting me? Paul's journey in Acts 28 ends with him chained to a guard for years while he preaches the gospel to anyone that will come see him in his rented house. It starts with him putting people in chains for the gospel and it ends with him in chains for the gospel. How beautiful is this? There's really no end to the book of Acts because God's spirit is moving even today and God is still continuing and Christians are still seeing miracles. Christians are still casting out demons and the move of God continues. While Paul spent those two years chained up in Rome, he wrote Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. So whenever you read those five books, Paul was writing those on house arrest, chained up in his rented house with a guard connected to him in Rome for those two years. Within a few years of Luke writing Acts 28, Paul was going to be martyred for his faith. We don't know how Paul was martyred, but tradition says he was beheaded in Rome. So just several years after Acts 28 is written by Luke, Paul ends up being martyred for his faith. Two and a half centuries after Acts chapter 28 in AD 313, 
Emperor Constantine officially called an end to persecution of Christians. 11 years later in AD 324, the emperor himself confessed faith in Christ and declared his intention to make Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. Think about that. 324 AD, Constantine, de Constantine declared Christianity would be the religion of the Roman Empire after all that Paul went through. And Paul's final chapter and his final letter, I don't know why I'm getting emotional right now. Maybe because this is the end of Acts and Paul gets martyred and all that Paul went through. And I, I just, it's just powerful, but I feel very emotional right now. But let me read you. This is the final thing I want to say about the life of Paul. This is his final chapter in his final letter. So Paul is at the end of his life. He's writing, I don't know why, well, I think he did know it would be his last letter, but we know now looking back is Paul's last letter. And here he is, his last letter, his last chapter of his last letter. Think about how powerful this is right here. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. This is the very end of Paul's life, the last thing Paul would write. What a legend Paul was. Here's what he would say. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his coming. Wow! The last chapter, the last thing recorded Paul would write is this. I'm, I have this prize waiting for me, this crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge is going to give me. And Paul says... The prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly await for his appearing. This is the promise to every single one of us tonight. Every single person watching, this is the promise that there is a crown of righteousness that is waiting for us at the appearing of our Lord. Whether the Lord comes back and we're with the Lord and we rule for a thousand years with him or whether we're in eternity and God gives us the crown of righteousness. Paul ran the race. He knew his death was near. He said, the time of my death is near. He fought the good fight. He finished the race and he remained faithful. The three things Paul did, fought the good fight, finished the race and remained faithful. These are the three things that I want my life's goal to be. Write these three things down. Fighting the good fight of faith. It, it is a fight, friend. This is not a game. This is not a playground. It is a battleground. The fight, the good fight to finish the race. This is our life's goal to finish the race set before us by Christ. He's the end at the end of the finish line. That's our goal is to finish the race. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't get tired. And then having remained faithful. This is my goal that I could stand before God one day and I could say, Lord, I fought the good fight. I finished the race and I remained faithful. I didn't leave. I didn't quit. I didn't give up. I didn't get disqualified. You can cross the finish line and then at the very end find that you were disqualified. I wasn't disqualified. I finished the race. I didn't give up. Father, we ask you tonight, Lord, that we would be these Christians, Lord, that would walk out in your spirit and in your power and would do what we see in the book of Acts. Father, I pray that every word that was spoken throughout this series of the book of Acts, I pray that the bird would not steal the word. I pray, Lord, it would fall on good ground that the soil that this word tonight lands on would not be rocky. It would not be choked out by thorns or thistles. It would not be shallow ground, but I just pray, Lord, it would fall on good ground and that it would bear fruit and I pray Lord over every single person in the chat that they would fight the good fight that they would finish the race and that they would remain faithful father I pray tonight 
Let this be our life's goal, Father. Let our life's goal be to be faithful to you no matter what happens through persecution, through tribulation, through trials. God, let us be faithful. Let us walk in obedience. Lord, we thank you that there is no amen in the book of Acts. We thank you, Lord, that the book of Acts didn't end, but it's continuing, that your word says that we are written epistles read by all men. And the story doesn't end, but it continues on even today. I just pray, Lord, that you would baptize us in your Holy Spirit right now. If you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you could just ask the Lord right now, Lord, baptize me in the Holy Spirit. Baptize me in the Holy Spirit right now. Father, we ask you, baptize us so we can walk out what you've called us to walk out. I just pray, Lord, for that person. I know you're listening on the verge of giving up, on the, that's tired, that's weary. God, give them the strength to continue on. Give them the tenacity, the passion, and the boldness to keep going, Father. I pray tonight in Jesus' name that we would keep running this race. They would continue on and that we would not stop. That we'd remain faithful. We'd fight the good fight. Give us a hunger for your word, Lord. Give us a hunger for prayer. And God, let us live in the spirit. Let us walk in the spirit. Let us not regard our life as our own, but let us be reminded that our life does not belong to us. Our life does not belong to us, but our life belongs to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There it is, guys. Book of Acts. Let's get some claps in the chat. Let's get some ones in the chat. We did the book of Acts, we finished. We did the book of Revelation now, every verse, and we just finished the book of Acts. What an incredible, incredible time that this has been. If you wanna give, you can also give to the stream tonight. If you are blessed, we always say don't night and dash. If you're watching on or listening on Spotify, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts, you can give on isaiasaldivar.com slash partner or Venmo at isaiasaldivar. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiasaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.